you can tell from the diaries, you know, I mostly reconstructed the story from diaries that they're all a little astonished at what the Colorado River actually looks like. And um, they're standing there looking at it, the very first rapid that they're going to face. They're all standing on the shore looking at the rapid, trying to decide how they're going to like negotiate down the river. And uh, one of the boats was not tied up quite right, and it pulls away. Hello, and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. Today, I'm excited to share my conversation with Melissa Sivany. She's a science journalist and the author of the new book, Brave the Wild River. It chronicles the tale of two intrepid women, Elzada Clover and Lois Jodder, who set out to map the botany of the Grand Canyon in the 1930s. Their trip was quite the adventure, through churning rapids and a series of mishaps. But also, the botanists defied expectations for women of their time, as it was unusual back then for women to get PhDs or to do fieldwork that was recognized as part of the research endeavor. Melissa shares tales from the river and gives a look at the reporting behind her book through the women's letters, diaries, and interviews with their family members. And we'll hear about how Clover and Jodder's collections and observations contributed to science even decades later. Thank you for joining me today, Melissa, to talk about your new book, Brave the Wild River. Thanks for having me. Uh, To start, why don't you tell us about the landscape of botany in the 1930s? And particularly, why were these two women so interested in running the Colorado River and exploring the plant diversity there? Yeah, it was such an interesting time for kind of the field of botany. Um, So it was changing in the 1930s, kind of prior to that botany in in the Americas was this this thing of like going out and collecting flowers, basically. And the idea was this is something that that young women could do very safely. They could go wander the fields and collect wildflowers. And then they would send those specimens to universities where kind of the real work would be done of, of identifying the specimen. Um, but what was happening in the 1930s was the field was becoming a much more kind of professional laboratory-based science. There were kind of early, early steps into the science of genetics, for example. And as that happened, women started to get shut out of the field of botany. So this character that I write about, Elzada Clover, comes along and she's really interested in collecting cactus. She wants to go out to places that no botanist has gone before and pick up cactus specimens. And she's entering the field at kind of the wrong time to do that. Like there's not a lot of opportunities for women and there's not a lot of opportunities to do that kind of kind of collecting work that she wants to do. So you can kind of imagine her, you know, looking around the country and thinking about where she can go find this cactus. And it strikes her that no botanist has run the Grand Canyon before and made a a formal plant collection there. And she gets this idea that she's going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And tell us a little bit more um, about Elzada Clover. Like how, what was she like and how had her career in botany unfolded prior to this 1938 trip? She was such a fascinating person to write about. She grew up on a farm in Nebraska. Uh, She ended up eventually in Texas, which is where she kind of fell in love with cactus. She was completely uninterested in becoming a wife or a mother. um, And that was kind of inconvenient for for a woman in the 1930s because those were the paths that were open to her. So she ends up fairly late in in life, kind of in her 30s. She goes and gets um, a PhD in botany at the University of Michigan again. And then she starts looking for a job and she can't find one. And there were these fascinating letters that were archived at the University of Michigan where, you know, she'd apply for a job and she'd get the reply back. Well, this job requires really difficult field work. So I need a man. 
And that was the kind of response she was getting towards her job hunt. So she ended up staying at the University of Michigan for her entire career. And really on her own dime with her own money, she would go out in the summers as far west as she could drive and she would she would collect cactus. And that was really her whole life. People who knew her just talked about how her obsession with plants was contagious. Um, she was a fantastic teacher. Um, students would talk about how they, you know, they could barely keep up with her in the field and she'd be out ahead and they'd be getting tangled up in poison ivy and she would just go like all she cared about was getting those plants. And that kind of love of plants was very contagious to her students. Um, So I had a lot of fun writing about her. She was certainly a highly unusual woman for her era. Mm, Yeah. And then also, in addition to Elzada, the other woman that went on this trip was Lois Jodder. And how did she come to love the science of plants? Right. So Lois Jodder was younger. Um, At the time of this trip, Elzada Clover was 41 years old and Lois Jodder was 24. And she was one of Elzada's students. Um, and but they were they were actually much closer in their academic careers. Um, Lois was fairly close to getting her PhD at the time of this trip. And she had grown up in California among the Redwoods. She came from an unusual family. Her father was a forester, and her mother came from a family of engineers, including female engineers. And so they really encouraged their daughter to to love science and to love the outdoors. Um, and they had I got the impression they had a lot of conversations kind of over the dinner table about these newfangled ideas about like conservation and protecting the natural world. Um, and eventually, Lois ends up at the University of Michigan. Um, as one of Elzada's students. And the two actually lived together for a couple of years in the same house. So I think, you know, they're they're roommates, they're friends. And when Elzada's looking around trying to find someone to invite on this trip to go with her down the Grand Canyon, um, she knows she has to bring another woman because it's the 1930s. She can't go off into the wilderness with just men. That would be really improper. Mm. So she's looking for a woman to invite. She's a little nervous about it because she knows she's asking a woman to do something that women don't typically do. Like this is not a time when women are going off and running the Grand Canyon. So, um, I think she settles on Lois Jodder because, you know, she's a she's a bright young botanist, talented botanist, um, passionate about the outdoors and the natural world. Um, she just Lois herself describes herself as bookish, but she actually has a lot of experience kind of camping in the backcountry. She had trained to be a National Park Service naturalist, even though the National Park Service wasn't hiring women to do that job at the time. They still had training programs that women could enter. Um, so she had a lot of experience. And then, of course, these two women had had lived together. So they knew that they could uh, stand each other in close quarters for long periods of time, which is a pretty important qualification for a river trip. Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, can you tell us the story of how this particular trip came to be? How did Clover hatch what the head of the body department uh, at the University of Michigan called her wild plan? Right. Her wild plan. Yeah. So in 1937, Glover is out doing what she loves to do. She's out in um, the wilds of Utah collecting cactus and she's staying at a place called the Mexican Hat Lodge. And the owner of the lodge is this guy named Norm Nevels. And he, it turns out, has this kind of wild dream. He wants to start a commercial river running business through the Grand Canyon. Nothing like this exists. People can't just sign up to go on a Grand Canyon river trip. 
And at this time, Norm Nevels has never actually run the Grand Canyon. He's been doing river trips down the San Juan, which is a tributary of the Colorado River. It's a much quieter, nicer river. And he's been doing these kind of quiet, nice river trips down the San Juan. And he's really into it. And he thinks he can start like a money-making business where people would pay him to guide guide him down to guide them down the Colorado River. Uh, and so you have to imagine some evening at the lodge, right? The two of them are talking and realize that their dreams can kind of collide, right? Uh, Elzada wants to go collect cactus in places where botanists haven't gone before. And Norm wants to run these wild rivers. And so they hatched this plan. And the way Elzada described it later, she said that, you know, they laid it out in just a couple of minutes, this whole, this whole plan. Mm-hmm. And then she goes back to the University of Michigan. She invites Lois and a zoologist to go along with her. And Norm starts building boats and he recruits two boatmen to row them. So it's going to be three boats, six people. None of them have done any kind of whitewater river rafting before. Wow. Yeah. And I guess maybe say a little bit more about why this was considered so dangerous. Like what was sort of the history or maybe give us a taste of the history of river running in the Colorado. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Indigenous peoples in this region have been running this river forever. And, and I heard stories from Navajo and from Hopi about um, about early river running. So the first person whose name that I personally know who ran the Colorado River through Grand Canyon is a Hopi man named Tio, um, who, who went all the way to the uh, to the ocean. Uh, so those stories were really fascinating. But I think in the 1930s, non-Native people didn't know those stories because the way non-Native people wrote about running the Colorado River was like, this is like a crazy thing to do. It was considered something that was really, really difficult and really, really dangerous. So John Wesley Powell went down in um, 1869. And after him, there were about a dozen expeditions up to 1938. So like the span of like 70 years a dozen non-native expeditions going down the river, not very many, um, about 50 men all told, and they were all men who succeeded at a Grand Canyon River trip at that point. Um, and, and yeah, you know, the, the superintendent of the national, of uh, Grand Canyon National Park actually wrote in his travel guide saying that people should not attempt to do this trip, that it was a bad idea. And when Norm Nevels wrote to him to say that they were going to go through the Grand Canyon and he wanted to know if they needed a permit or something like that, the superintendent wrote back and said, well, I can't stop you. But if you get into trouble in the National Park Service boundaries, we're not going to come rescue you. You are Mm. on your own. So this was kind of the impression of river running at the time was that it was a really, really dangerous thing to do. Okay, yeah. And that's sort of the background to this this group making their expedition and it seems like one of the it it seems like lois jotter had a hard time convincing her family that it was going to be that it was a worthwhile endeavor um can you say a little bit about that what was that like for her and her family yeah, there was this fascinating series of letters. Um, Lois Jodder, like kept everything related to this river trip, including all these letters that she wrote to her family before she left. And they're pretty interesting reading. You know, she writes very casually sort of in February of 1938 to say, well, Alzada Clover invited me on this river trip and I think I really want to go. Um, and she kind of needed to ask her father's permission. And she also needed to borrow money from him because they were all going to have to put up $200 to help pay for the boats and supplies, which was a lot of money in 1938. Um, and, and both the women had trouble kind of scraping that up. So she writes to her father. She asked to borrow the money. And her parents, they're very supportive, but you can also tell they're very nervous. You know, like 
privately, her father wrote to um, Lois Jodder's thesis advisor to be like, I don't really know if this is a good idea. I'm very, very concerned. And it was all made worse because right, right at that moment, February of 1938, a Saturday Evening Post article came out about a man named Buzz Holmstrom, who had run the Colorado River solo the year before. And in that article, he was quoted as saying that women did not belong on the Colorado River. And he was talking about a woman who about a decade earlier had tried to go down the river with her husband, and they had both disappeared um, and, and had apparently died. To this day, we don't know what happened to them. And because that article came out and it was so widely read, um, Lois Jodder's family really freaked out. They all read it and they all wrote her very, very worried letters. And it was interesting to see her write back and say things like, really, it's not that bad. Like, it's very safe. Um, our trip leader knows what he's doing. You know, the maps are pretty good. All those things were kind of lies, like, you know, right, like the trip leader, you know, Norm Nevels had, had never gone down the Grand Canyon before. So she was reassuring them in, you know, you could tell she really wanted to do this trip. She didn't want her family to freak out. Um, but just to give you an idea of her state of mind, like she, she, without telling anyone except her roommate, she packed up all of her stuff in boxes before she left. And she labeled those boxes just in case she didn't come back. Mm-hmm. So she did have some sense that that it might have been that there was some level of danger involved. And and it sounds like there weren't, you know, along with Neville's uh, lack of experience, it sounds like there were some other things that weren't quite ideal, like the fact that the journey was planned for the peak of the Colorado's flow and they didn't bother carrying shortwave radios. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, very have- high water, very high water that summer. Um, so that was inconvenient, which I... I assume went that time of year because uh, they, you know, they were both teachers, and so they they had the summers off. Um, but it was a bad time of year to go. <laughs> okay. Did you get a sense in your reporting that the women later reflected on this at all? On the on. I think, I think afterwards, as often happens with um, anything you do that's a little adventurous, you know, it was all great. I think afterwards they felt like. Yeah, that wasn't that wasn't too bad, you know. It wasn't really that scary. Um, that's kind of the impression I got. Um, but yeah, I think going into it, there was definitely a lot of um, concerns, a lot of worries about what they were facing. Sort of secretly, though, you know, they would talk about it among themselves, but not with their family and friends. Um, with with kind of their outward facing, their public faces were like this is going to be safe. And particularly, they wanted to make it clear to anybody who asked that they didn't think rafting or running a river was more dangerous for women than it was for men, um, which was something they kind of had to repeat over and over again, because again, the perception was that women couldn't do this. Mm, yeah. Um, tell us how the journey started, sort of get us onto the river with them. Okay, so they launched from Green River, Utah in, uh, let's see, it's June 20th, 1938, uh, kind of right at the end of the summer monsoon season here where we've got these big rainstorms, or I'm sorry, right at the beginning of the summer monsoon season here and kind of at the end of the snow melt coming down. So the water is very, very high. And uh, their plan is they're going to go down the Green River and then they're going to go through Cataract Canyon on the Colorado River and then Glen Canyon, uh, which is now beneath Lake Powell, but it wasn't at the time, and then the Grand Canyon, and they're ending the journey at Hoover Dam, which at the time was called Boulder Dam, uh, and which had just been built, and it was still kind of, the reservoir was still sort of filling up. So that's the plan. They're going to be on the river for 
you know, six or seven weeks, something like that. Um, and yeah, their, their launch at the Green River was a lot of fun because by this time, um, the story of this trip has made the newspapers and this whole crowd of people has gathered basically to tell them that they're going to die. <laughs> like that's what the crowd is doing. Um, and so they get all these like dire stories about the river while, while this, um, while they're packing up the boats and getting ready to launch. Um, most of those stories are kind of aimed at the women telling the women that they shouldn't go on this trip. And Elzada Clover is very flippant about all of this. At one point, she, she, I can tell maybe she's getting a little frustrated and she says, well, if we don't come back, just toss a rose over the canyon for us. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so this is kind of her attitude towards towards all of the, the doomsayers that have gathered on the river river's banks. And so off they go. They spend four kind of nice, quiet days on the Green River and then they hit the Colorado. They hit the confluence when the water is quite high. It's running at about 50,000 cubic feet per second, um, which is a lot. Um, the river's, river's very high. And um, kind of at that point, everything goes wrong. <laughs> right? A lot of bad things happen to them their first few days on the Colorado River. Yeah. Do you mind telling us about some of those harrowing moments? Um, maybe particularly Cataract Canyon. I'm not sure when that was in the trip, but that seems like a, a pretty important one. Right. Yeah. So Cataract Canyon is kind of right at the start of the trip. Um, that's their first experience with the Colorado River. And you can tell from the diaries, you know, I mostly reconstructed the story from diaries that they're all a little astonished at what the Colorado River actually looks like. And, um, they're standing there looking at it, the very first rapid that they're going to face. They're all standing on the shore looking at the rapid, trying to decide how they're going to like negotiate down the river. And uh, one of the boats was not tied up quite right, and it pulls away down the river and goes off. And oh, remember, no. they've only got three boats, and I presume that the food supplies are split among those three boats. So this is pretty bad. Like the beginning of the trip, there's no way to really hike out and get new supplies. There's really no contact with the outside world. So if they lose this boat, like if it sinks or gets smashed up, they're, they're going to be in trouble. Like they're going to be very hungry <laughs> for the rest of the trip. Uh, so this is bad. Um, and so Lois Jotter and her boatman, Don Harris, jump into one of the other boats and they chase it. And so their first experience with rapids is chasing this runaway boat. And they go through a whole bunch of rapids all at once. The water is so high that really Cataract Canyon is just like one long rapid. And if you've never been in the rapid, like we're talking about these like huge waves that kind of hold their place in the current. They look like ocean waves, but instead of rolling towards you, they're they're forming and crashing down and forming again, all in all in place in the current. And the boat kind of just crashes through them. So you're cresting these waves and then you're falling down into these troughs. And Lois is bailing with a coffee can because she can't get the bailing bucket loose. Um, and off they go down the river chasing this lost boat. And this, you know, kind of series of maybe not the best decisions ends up with Lois stranded at the riverbank all night by herself. Um, once they find the boat, Don Harris walks back to, to rejoin the rest of the crew and he tells her I'm, I'm coming back for you but he doesn't show up again and she doesn't know why and so she's she's left on the riverbank all alone all night by herself and that was the scene that's the scene that actually opens the book and it's the scene that made me want to tell this story when I first discovered um, this part of the story in one of her letters. Because I think if it had been me, I would have been fairly terrified. I probably wouldn't have slept very well, like not, you know, having this very bad day, not knowing where the rest of the crew is. I, I think I would have in that circumstance, maybe not handled it the best. Um, but Lois, you know, 
she she makes a fire she cooks herself dinner she's got two of the boats now so she's got all the bedding she's got all the food you know everybody else is pretty miserable um but she actually writes later in a letter to her mother i had a lovely time and i really loved that about her yeah that she seemed really um calm in the face of something that could have been really frightening right exactly yeah it says a lot about her character that she's kind of just embracing embracing all of it you know she's glad to be there i think and uh she's able to stay calm in the face of disaster and uh i i just i said something about her character that really spoke to me well and that stands in sharp contrast to the press coverage about how they painted these two women scientists do you mind saying a bit more about that right yeah the the press coverage was really eye opening um you know just just a lot of focus particularly on the women a lot of headlines about the women trying to do this trip um a lot of retelling of the story of the woman who a decade before had drowned on the river um just really kind of the sense that they didn't belong and it was a particular frustration to both Elzada and Lois that none of the newspapers talked about the botany that they were going to do they kept saying i could tell this from their diaries you know they, they kept talking about well we're here to make this botanical collection like this is going to be a really important botanical collection we're scientists they wanted that to be the focus um and that's just not what happened like the press coverage really kind of runs away with this narrative of these two women who are doing this crazy thing and rarely ever talked about them as being scientists and sometimes would get it wrong would refer to them as archaeologists or geologists or some other kind of science if they mentioned it at all and that was a frustration for both of these women really for their entire lives that the the press coverage um was so focused on their their gender and in a very negative way you know um there was an article that came out at one point during the trip that referred to them as quote so much baggage because oh wow the idea was that if there was any kind of emergency that these women would just be in the way they would be baggage that had to be taken down the river and of course obviously from the story i just told about Kat at Canyon, that it was certainly not the case. Hmm. So yes, they were encountering this the sexism in the press coverage, but there was also some sexism that they encountered on the river from their their groupmates. Do you mind saying a bit more about that and how it got in the way of their plant collecting? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the most important one, of course, was that they were the cooks for the entire expedition. I, I scoured the letters written before the trip, trying to find the moment where it was determined that the two women would do all the cooking, and I never found it. I think it was just accepted by everybody that the women would do the cooking. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, uh, Lois and Elzada didn't really complain about that until very, very late in the trip when um, Elzada made a note in her diary at one point that said, if I ever do this again, I'm going to hire a cook. Um, and I think there was some frustration, quite a bit of frustration from her in the fact that, I mean, the cooking is a lot of work. Like they were getting up very early, sometimes before dawn to cook breakfast. Um, then they were cooking dinner for the entire crew. And that left very little time for them to collect plants. Um, Elzada's original vision for this trip that she laid out um, in writing was that they would collect plants kind of all the way down the river. They would stop and they would take hikes up like the tributary channels. None of that happened because they were so busy just trying to get the boats down the river and kind of stay alive that there wasn't very much time to, to collect plants. And so they ended up getting up quite early and staying up quite late in order to make their plant collection. 
Um, and it, it was, it's quite a process, right? They would, um, you know, cut a plant, they would press it flat between pieces of newspaper. They would stack those together with blotting paper that was meant to keep it dry. And then they would put the whole thing between two pieces of wood and cinch it tight. And that was called a plant press. And so they would kind of create these as they were going down the river. And, uh, that's tough enough with just any plant. Um, but their specialty, Elzada's specialty was cactus. And so with cactus, you've got to like scoop out the pulp on the inside and flat it. You got to keep all the spines intact because that's part of how you identify a cactus. So pretty tricky work to do. Um, and under really difficult conditions, they were having a hard time keeping the plants dry. Um, they would keep them in the hatches of the boats, but the hatches turned out to be not particularly waterproof. Um, so it was it was a challenge. It was a challenge to do it. And and yet they managed to collect hundreds and hundreds of plant specimens as they were going down the river. Um, Elzada was really proud that she collected at least one specimen for every single cactus species that she saw on the river. So they they managed to make this pretty significant collection, even while doing a lot of what they, they refer to as housekeeping chores as they were going down the river. Once Elzada and Lois got sort of established on the river, along with the rest of their crew, what was life like for them? You know, I think most of their day was kind of consumed with this, like, getting down the river, you know, trying to, like, get three boats down the river safely. Um, and so that meant running rapids. That also meant, because Norm Nevels got quite nervous after their bad experiences in Cataract Canyon, it also meant sometimes lining around the, the rapids. So they would attach lines to the boats and they would drag them kind of from the shoreline so that they didn't have to risk running the rapid, which was kind of backbreaking, exhausting work all by itself. Um, and the women pitched in with all of this. Um, they didn't they didn't have the chance to row themselves, which was something Lois' daughter really wanted to do, but she was never allowed to do. But they pitched in with all of the lining and the getting the boats down, down river and portaging the supplies around rapids that looked too scary to run. So this consumed a lot of their time and a lot of their um, attention in their diaries and ended up being on just like, you know, how do we how do we get these boats down the river? Um, but of course, they're also doing the cooking. They're also doing the plant collecting. Um, they're making occasionally special stops um, in order to collect particular plants that they want to see at, at springs and waterfalls that are, you know, sacred, sacred areas to the area's tribes. Um, and what else? They have two chances to stop and contact the outside world. So most of this is happening in kind of this extreme isolation. They don't have a radio or any way to, to call out to the outside world. Um, but they stop at uh, Lee's Ferry and they stop at Phantom Ranch. So there's two moments where they get to resupply, get new food, send out letters to the family, basically saying that they're alive and that everything's okay. Um, and yeah, I mean, most of their daily life is just kind of involved with kind of all the work that it takes to to get a boat down the river and to set up camp and to break down camp and then somewhere in there to make their botany collection. Right. Yeah. So they were doing a lot of botany. And uh, I would love to hear a bit more about the world of botany in the 1930s. Um, can you talk about sort of what the the concepts of the day were and the the surrounding scientific context for their work? Yeah, this really fascinated me because I wanted to kind of get inside Elzada Clover's head and Lois Jodder's head as they were looking at the river. I wanted to know like what they were seeing. And so, um, I started, I started looking around for, like the scientific papers of the 1920s and the 1930s. And, 
you know, the word ecosystem wasn't in use. They didn't know the word ecosystem. It had just barely been coined in a scientific paper in 1935, but nobody was using it yet and nobody would use it until the 1960s. And so they don't have this vocabulary that we have today. And yet from the notes they were making on the river and from the scientific papers that they published afterwards, you could see them working out the concept of an ecosystem, even if they didn't have the word. Um, they wrote about, you know, how the topography or the angle of the sunlight affected the plants or how browsing uh, animals affected the plants. They wrote about how um, mice would stuff their cheeks with seeds and then they'd crawl high up on the canyon walls and some of those seeds would would not get eaten and they, they would sprout. And so they were, they were thinking about how the plants were moving around this really um, strange environment where you have a river and then these very, very steep canyon walls. And all of that really fascinated me because today we would think of that as ecosystem science, even though at the time um, they, they really didn't have the words to describe it. Um, they were interested in how uh, elevation affected plant life. So this was a concept that had been kind of figured out in Arizona a couple of decades before that um, plants or communities of plants change with elevation. So at the top of a mountain, you get pine trees. At the bottom of the mountain, you get desert, basically. And since they're going downriver, they're dropping in elevation. So they were interested in tracking those shifts. And of course, all of this is the kind of stuff that got completely left out of the press coverage. Um, but you can see them working it out in the scientific papers they published. And I, I found it all so fascinating. Yeah. And it sounds like some of the the things that they were finding were contrary to the prevailing ideas of their time. Yeah, one thing that Elzada Clover worked out was that, you know, the the concept that had been laid out about um they're called life zones. Um so the idea that you you go from desert to say like scrub to pinyon juniper to pine trees. Um this had been mapped out in in Arizona and the mountains of the west. But she was finding it was kind of too general general of a concept to describe what she was actually seeing. I think today we would use the word microhabitats, but she didn't have that word. Um, but she actually kind of worked out um, a system for describing the groupings of plants that she was finding. So she she um, talked about how certain plants would grow on the, the shoreline of the river and other plants would grow on the talus slopes. So these like rocky rubble slopes and uh, other plants would only grow where there were springs or waterfalls. And all of these plants were subject to um, incredible amounts of change. So there were constantly landslides or floods or long droughts that the plants had to learn how to cope with. Um, and so she, you, you could see her kind of working that out, like, you know, prickly pear get ripped up by the floods. But then the pads, an individual plat, pad of a prickly pear might float down river and it can reroot. So it'll lodge somewhere and, and start over again. And you can kind of see her working out how these plants were adapting to this incredibly harsh environment. How did this voyage change the way botanists looked at the desert? You know, I think... Um, I think for Alzada Clover, it was kind of about filling in a spot on the map that Western botany hadn't filled in yet. I mean, she really went into this not knowing what kinds of plants she was going to find there. Um, she did describe four species of plants that hadn't previously been described in Western science. But I think it's more significant and more important that she made this comprehensive plant list, hundreds and hundreds of species, um, not just cactus, but all kinds of plants through Cataract Glen and Grand Canyon. And that plant list, I think, became more and more significant with time, because in the 1960s, Glen Canyon Dam was built. And 
if you know, like you, you might know in the region, Glen Canyon Dam has um, essentially drowned upriver Glen Canyon and lower Cataract Canyon. But it, I think it's less known that it, it had equally profound effects downstream in the Grand, Grand Canyon. So the water in the Grand Canyon is now clearer. It's colder. Um, the rhythms have changed. It no longer has really low drought periods and really high flood periods. It's kind of steady and and sort of always sort of high water. Um, and so all of those things changed the ecology of the region. And in the 1990s, when scientists started thinking about how could we reverse some of that, how could we kind of help the environment recover from the effects of the dam, one of the few uh, scientific papers they had to look at was this plant list published by Clover and Jotter. Um, and Jotter actually got a chance to come back to the river in 1994 and run it a second time, run the Grand Canyon a second time with a scientific crew. The U.S. Geological Survey put together this trip to try to understand how the river had changed, not just because of the dam, but all of these other things, tourism, exotic species coming in, um, you know, climate change, uh, you know, all of these profound changes that have happened to the river. And they wanted to try to understand that. And so they brought a bunch of what they called old timers back to the river, including Lois Jotter. And so for me, I felt that their, their plant list, um, you know, I don't know what kind of splash it made in the 1940s when it was published, but it has become more and more significant as time has gone on. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like the world didn't understand the importance of the trip. It sounds like there were some changes of heart. So you mentioned Buzz Holmstrom. Uh, how did his view of the women change? It was such a sweet and unexpected part of the story um, because when I first encountered Buzz Holmstrom's name, you know, it's in the context of this this article where he was quoted as saying that women didn't belong in the Colorado River. And this is kind of like the shadow that hangs over Elzada and Lois. Like everybody's read this article. And, you know, I think in their minds, maybe he was almost like this villain that had had really cast a shade on their trip. Um, but they get to meet him in person. Um, Lois meets him in, in person at Lee's Ferry, which is sort of halfway through the trip at the head of the Grand Canyon. Buzz Holmstrom is working nearby at Lake Mead, and he he comes up to meet these women that he keeps hearing about in the news. And he spends about a day and a half with Lois. And in the course of that day and, and a half, he changes his mind. And he actually writes a letter to his mother at the end of that um, visit saying the women on the trip are really doing better than the men. <laughs> and so this kind of like wonderful redemptive arc. Um, he appears later in the book at, at the end, he meets them at Lake Mead and helps them tow their boats across the reservoir, which is, you know, it's 110 degrees and they don't really want to row over this still stagnant water. Um, so he kind of like re comes and rescues them at the end of the trip. And it was just, it was really cool to see in his letters um, kind of the, the evolution of his ideas about these two women and who they who they were um meeting them he becomes close friends with both of them mm -hmm. he um they exchange letters for the rest of his life um and and just he was just a, a wonderfully fascinating character um very funny uh very sweet um and it was it was really neat to see that i i kind of think of it as a redemptive arc in his story yeah, and I'd like to hear a bit about your experience reporting on this book. Maybe first off, how did you find the story? Where did you first come across it? So Lois Jotter's collection is housed at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, where I live. And I, I stumbled across it 
completely by accident. I was looking for something else entirely that I no longer remember. And uh, this little hyperlink popped up that said women botanists. And when I clicked on it, there was just Lois Jotter's name in there. And I read the little description that she had run this river with Elzada Clover. And I was really shocked that I had never heard of either of them before. You know, I grew up in Arizona. I've written a lot about the Colorado River, and yet I had never encountered their names. And so it was kind of in the back of my mind that I wanted to know more about their story. And there were a few things that had been written about them in in various books, um, but most of those things really talked about them as in the context of the history of river running. And what I was really interested in is, is learning their story in the context of the history of science, the history of botany. I wanted to know about the botanical work that they did. I mean, it was so unusual for women to get PhDs in the sciences in the 1930s. And then it was so unusual for them to decide that they were going to go off and run this wild river. And I really wanted to know kind of what was in their minds, what drove them to do that. And so, um, you know, I started fishing around for more about their story. And eventually I I just happened to go into the special collections department at Northern Arizona University um, when there was a display of Grand Canyon photographs. And one of the photographs on the wall was a picture of, of Lois and Elzada in Cataract Canyon in 1938. And I was standing there looking at it. And the curator of the exhibit walked by and I said, I've been thinking about writing something about these two women. And he told me to wait and he went back into the archives and then he returned with this box and he put the box on the table and he opened it up and he took out all this bright pink bubble wrap. And inside the box was Lois Jotter's hat. It was oh, actually wow. more. Yeah, it was cool. It was actually more like a helmet, like it says something about her state of mind. It's like this very stiff pith helmet um, that she wore on the 1938 river trip. And clearly she kept it her entire life. Um, it was donated to the archives after her death by her son. Uh, and I just, I just like suddenly felt, I don't know, the story became so real to me and these two women became so real to me. And so I said, thank you. And I went out to the library and I sat down at the first table I came to and I started to write. Hmm. And what were the other sources that you were using to help fill in the story? Yeah, the most important sources were the two diaries from the two women, um, which I'm so grateful that they had the foresight to keep those diaries. They're very detailed and um, also to donate them. Um, They both donated those diaries before their deaths to various archives. Um, But there were also other things. There were lots of letters that people sent off during the river trip. Um, There were the diaries of several of the men who were on the trip with them. And then I I tracked down um, some relatives and some former students, um, which opened up really wonderful conversations about these two women, um, getting to see them through the eyes of, you know, Lois Jutter's son and Elzada Clover's nieces and nephews and some of her students really kind of opened up new horizons for me on, on who these women were. Um, I think they were just both fascinating and incredibly inspirational to everybody they came into contact with. It sounds like you also connected with these women across uh, across time through your own trip down the Colorado. Can you please tell us about that? Yeah, I, um, you know, early on when I when I signed the contract for this book, I went out on a hike with a couple of friends and talking about my plans for all of the archival research I was going to do. Um, and then one of them said, so when are you going to raft the Grand Canyon? <laughs> I was like, oh, right. I need to do that, um, which was uh, 
a kind of nerve wracking prospect for me. Um, I had never done any kind of whitewater river rafting before. Um, and I was nervous. I will admit I was pretty nervous about the prospect. And I think in retrospect, that was a good thing. Um, if I had been more experienced at river rafting, I might have approached their story differently. But being nervous, let me tap into what I think these women felt um, in the 1930s going on this trip without really good boats or good maps or good food supplies or an emergency radio or any of the stuff that we have today. Um, so I joined up with a botany crew. I wanted to know what it felt like to actually have to work as you're going down the river. Um because that's what these two women had to do. So I joined a botany crew that was uh, tasked with weeding out an invasive grass species called Ravenna. And it was a two-week trip. It was a very small crew. There were three boats and six people, just like there were in 1938. And if you've ever gone on a river trip, you know that after the first couple of days, like time becomes very strange. Um, you, The rest of the world kind of just falls away. And I really did connect with what was happening in my mind in 1938 with the story I was writing, um, you know, it it sometimes felt like I was there, um, even though so much has changed about river running and about the river itself. Um, having the experience of just seeing those, those tall canyon walls lit up by the sunlight and the ravens and the bighorn sheep and feeling what it's like to go through a rapid and feeling what it's like to drift down those long stretches of still water that you get in the canyon, camping at night on the sandbars. Like all of that really helped me tap into what Elzada and Lois had experienced. And I kept a detailed diary on that trip. And when I got back, I um, I typed up bits of the diary that I thought I could use, not about my personal experience, but just about, you know, descriptions of what the canyon looked like. Um, I actually marked up the map that I brought with me or like certain moments where I was like, stop and look at this thing at this moment so that I could kind of fill in the details that were a little sketchy in the 1938 diaries. And I typed those all up and I actually printed out my draft and I pasted them into the draft at appropriate moments. Um, so, yeah, it was just I mean, if you ever have a chance for a river rafting trip. Really, really incredible experience. Um, they always say it's a life-changing experience, and it's it's hard to like put your finger on why that is, um, because of course you come back and you go back to your ordinary life. Um, but I think it does, you know, it makes you feel very human, which kind of sounds silly, but all of the stuff that we deal with in our daily lives—email, phone calls—all of that just drops away, and you really feel like what it means to be a human being in a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like um, in in reading your story, it sounds like that was also a significant trip because you were able to carry a little piece of Lois with you. Um, do you mind saying a bit about that? And also what it was like speaking with uh, with Lois's family? Um, how How is it? How did they respond to your efforts to chronicle this river trip? Yeah, yeah, I was really I was really touched by um, speaking with the family members of, of both of these women. Um you know, who clearly just left such a legacy in their own families. And I'm hoping this book will will broaden that legacy, will will bring kind of the inspiration that I felt learning about them to a much wider group of people. Um, I did go up and, and meet Lois Jodder's son um, and had a long conversation with him. Gosh, I don't know, Carolyn, should I give it away? It's, it's one of my favorite parts of the book. <laughs> you don't have to if you don't want to. I'll I'll give a hint. I'll say that 
He gave me a, like a talisman to take down the river with me. Um, a, a, I will call it a good luck charm. And it was something that Lois Jodder had carried with her in 1938. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. You, can, you can read the book to learn the rest. <laughs> I also spoke with you in the past about reporting on unsung scientists, people who are doing science, but weren't recognized in their time because of where they were and sort of the edges of power and, and their world. Mm. Uh, other than Clover and Jodder, who were some of those people that you came across in your reporting? So many. There were so many. Um, and, I, you know, as I was doing research on this book, I just kept it kept opening and opening into the stories of other other women, mostly, who had been working and doing science in this region, whose whose names I didn't really know. Um, and I think they're unsung stories, you know, not necessarily because their story is completely lost, but because their stories haven't been centered on science. Um, you know, I mean, you can find things about Lois and Alzada and these other women, but, you know, it just taking them seriously as scientists and understanding that the work that they did matter. Um, I think, I think that requires a shift in perspective because so often we think about science, um, as something that's happening in a laboratory somewhere where people are bashing atoms together or like breaking the laws of physics, that kind of thing. Um, and I, I really want to recenter people's understanding of how science gets done, that it gets done by ordinary people who are out in the natural world being curious about it, chasing their passion and kind of incrementally adding to our knowledge of how the world works. And there were a lot of stories of women doing that in this region before Elzada and Lois came along. Um, so some of them I discovered, let's see, um, uh, Ellen Powell Thompson was John Wesley Powell's sister. And in the 1800s, she went out with him um, during his second river trip. They took a long break over the winter just north of the canyon. They were camping and she went out with them um, for months and collected plants in the region. And those plants are, were sent to Harvard University and, you know, serious scientific work was was done with them. Um, and she also went a little way down, down the river, um, down the Grand Canyon, just a couple of miles um, at the front. And, uh, apparently had a wonderful time, but they wouldn't let her go the rest of the way. <laughs> so there was there was her, let's see, um, there was uh, Florence Miriam Bailey, who was an ornithologist that spent several months at the bottom of the Grand Canyon cataloging the bird life mm -hmm. and really advocating um, with the Park Service to protect the birds from threats that were facing them. Uh, there was Bertha Parker, who was an indigenous archaeologist who worked in the Lake Mead region and made significant findings on like giant sloth bones in the caves around there. Um, I just kept stumbling across their these names, you know, and there, there must be so many more that I haven't haven't heard of yet. Um, but I was really, you know, I was just really fascinated by how many women were out working in this region and doing serious science in this region. And I hope I hope we're moving into an era where more of these stories get get told. Were there other indigenous tales that you wanted to tell? Um, is there? Yeah, you know, I think the indigenous history of this region is very long, right? And there are so many stories, um, many of which I, I I don't tell in the book because as a white woman writing about two white women, I don't necessarily have the right to tell those stories. But I tried to weave in um, what I could about. Um, especially how indigenous peoples have interacted with the plant life of this region. So, you know, the Grand Canyon is the cultural homeland of 11 federally recognized tribes, um, Navajo, Hopi, five bands of the Southern Paiute, um, Zuni, Havasupai, Wallapai, Yavapai Apache. 
Um, and I had conversations with many tribal members over the course of writing this book. I tried to only share stories that had been shared with me, um, kind of in a formal interview. Um, because sometimes things that have been written down about um, indigenous connections to this region weren't meant to be written down. Um, so I tried to be respectful of that and not say too much, um, not say things I didn't have a right to say. But I'm really grateful to this group called the Intertribal Centennial Conversations Group, um, which is housed at the Grand Canyon Trust here in Flagstaff. And they're working to um, kind of change the way Indigenous stories are told at the National Park Service at Grand Canyon National Park, um, because for a long time, it's really been ignored that the Grand Canyon is homeland to Indigenous peoples. And so I wove into the book um, some of those stories about how Indigenous peoples have run this river, how they've interacted with the plant life of the river. One of the things I really wanted to make clear was you know, um, even though we think of the Grand Canyon as this incredibly wild and remote place, it actually is home to people. And the plants there have been cultivated, which is something I didn't really know or think about before writing this book. But, you know, plants like agave and prickly pear that provide food are actually cultivated plants. You know, they've been moved around, they've been kind of fostered and their their shape has changed over, you know, over the millennia as they've been cultivated. And that was a really fascinating thing to discover. I don't think Alzada and Lois knew a lot about that, but they did know a little. Um, they, they acknowledged in their plant list um, certain plants that were being used by the indigenous peoples of the region. Um, Lois Jotter wrote an unpublished paper that talked about different sedges and rushes being used for basket weaving. So they knew a little. And I was also really touched to learn from one of Alzada Clover's students that um, whenever the topic came up, she would correct people if they said that she was the first woman to succeed at running the Grand Canyon. She would correct them and say, I'm the first non-Native woman to run the Grand Canyon. So she knew that this region had a, a long Indigenous history, and um, and I think she honored that. How did Lois and Elzada's lives change after this experience? Um, and do you have a sense of how it changed them? I do, yeah. I think... Um, I think it was kind of, it became like a touchstone in their lives, like something that they returned to again and again, and not in the way, it, they didn't necessarily talk about it a great deal. Um, I, I heard from students and relatives um, for both of these women, they're like, well, they never really told these stories. They never really said that they did this incredible thing. But I think it was something in their lives that was incredibly important to them. Um, I mean, I can tell that just by the things that they saved, that they donated to archives before they died. All of those letters, um, the, the talisman, talisman's the hat, you know. <laughs> I think the fact that they saved all these things says something about how important it was in their lives. And I think they came away with a, a greater sense of um, confidence. Um, for Lois in particular, you know, she was pretty young at the time, 24 years old. Um, I think she felt like she had participated in, in meaningful scientific work. And um, after this, she became a very confident teacher and public speaker. She would go kind of on, they did a little tour where they would go talk about their work. Um, so I think it changed that for her. Um, and I think, I think for Alzada, 
Um, Alzada struggled a little bit more with the frustration that her work wasn't acknowledged in her own lifetime as being scientifically significant. Um, that was a frustration for her her entire life. So I think she felt personally that the work she did mattered, but maybe she never got the recognition for it that she was hoping for. So I'm hoping I'm hoping this book changes that um, <laughs> a little late, but I'm hoping she's gonna get that recognition now. Yeah. Um, what would you want people today to draw from the tale of Clover and Jodder's journey? Two things, I think. The the first is that the Colorado River is at this crossroads. Um, we need to really rethink the policies that govern how we treat this river, how its water is divided up. And we're kind of in the in the throes of that right now. And for me, I feel like Scientific knowledge is incredibly important for shaping whatever the future is going to look like. I think knowing our past, knowing what things used to look like um, really matters. There's a concept in ecology called shifting baselines, and it's the idea that it's very easy for us to forget what the world used to look like. And so papers like Elzada and Lois's um, scientific papers, they can kind of help us pin those baselines in place and remind us how much this place has changed and hopefully encourage us to find ways to restore it and to protect it into the future. I think the second thing is um, maybe a little more personal, but you know, I, I always wanted to be a scientist myself. Um, I became a science writer instead for various reasons. And, you know, I, I think I'm in the right place. That's okay. But um, I hope that young people or really any kind of people will take inspiration from their story and understanding that science really is something that anyone can do. Anyone with passion and curiosity about the natural world. Um, it's not something that can or should be locked away in a laboratory. It's happening out there in the real world. And I want this story to be inspirational to all kinds of people, all genders, all levels of ability. I want them to feel like they can go out and chase their passion. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, Melissa. And I really appreciate your deep reporting um, for this book. Thank you so much, Carolyn. This was a lovely conversation. If you'd like to learn more about Melissa Sivany and her book, Brave the Wild River, we've linked to her website at scienceforthepeople.ca. I had the pleasure of talking with Melissa for an article about the craft of science journalism, focusing on how to report unsung historical stories in science, like that of Jodder and Clover's adventure. We've linked to that, too. On our page, you'll also find links to our show on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe, or leave a review. If you like what you're hearing, please consider supporting the show by donating through our Patreon page. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 